welcome to the Inside Out Security Show. I'm your host, Cindy Ng, and I'm joined by security practitioners Mike, Killian, and Chris. And it might be obvious when someone like Brian Krebs writes a PSA on not answering innocuous questions like, what was your first car? Or tell us the name of your very first pet, even if it's with an online group you trust. And it suggests you to provide a fake first pet name. And maybe we're not the type of people to answer these questions truthfully, (laughs) or maybe we are. How do you keep track of all your fake answers to these questions? And more importantly, how did you realize to start using fake information? Because I don't think this is something you'd come up with naturally. Oh, these questions might not be a good idea to answer so truthfully. Hi, this is Killian. I think it's at least worth pointing out that the supposition here is that we've all come to this conclusion before reading Brian's article. And I think that is not necessarily the case with everyone. It's definitely interesting to think about. I don't know if if Mike and Chris are prolific Facebook users or anything like that, but typically I don't use that, so I don't use Facebook. But it's very interesting that I think a lot of people do, and they probably will answer those little quizzes and things like that uh, with this information fairly truthfully. But it's worth pointing out that I don't think, at least I didn't realize, or at least not consciously think of these harvesting schemes and giving fake answers, but I've heard that before from other things. So it's probably difficult once you start giving these fake answers out to keep track of them. So might come back to something like using a password manager for some of this. Hopefully that would avoid the situation of even having to provide or use these questions to reset your password if you have it secured in one place. But at some point, you know, the, the web of lies is going to get fairly deep if you come up with fake answers for everything then too. So I'm not sure what's better or worse, maybe avoiding the problem. When I read this, it, it came off as something that should be obvious to me. But I would say if I thought about myself 10 years ago, you know, or 15 years ago when Facebook and stuff like that started showing up, I don't think I would have had, you know, a second thought about answering, oh yeah, you know, tell me about the first car you owned or or taking a quiz that has 50 different points, all of which are potential data points that can identify you. I no longer answer any of these kind of things. I know there's definitely some relatives of mine who are far more into it. Well, there's two ways you can handle this. One is don't give that information out in the first place for the sake of fun because you don't know who's going to take that information and, and do something malicious with it. And number two, I do agree about the idea of falsifying your answers to those security questions. I agree that it's definitely kind of hard to, to figure out what the actual answer, quote unquote, would be, uh, or your, your falsified answer that makes sense to only you would be. I need to do better about that myself. Yeah, I don't know. I, I hadn't thought about the potential of the misuse of that kind of data. Right, this is Mike. Security questions are a bad way of doing security. It's not what should be done that, you know, two-factor auth in the form of a connecting application that sends you a code or, you know, even SMS is, is better than this. So hopefully this is going away. And I think it should. Like, I would like to live in a world where people can share what car did you first learn to drive a stick on without thinking that this is compromising their, you know, future financial stability. And if you do need to do this, I think the, the right answer is very similar to passwords, which is use a, a password management app and it lets you add in a additional information about the secrets to that. So you could even just, you know, put in, it says like, what's your first pet's name? And you put in, you know, ABKL1, dollar sign, dollar sign four, whatever it is, you know, some randomly generated password that you still know and can access as the 
answer to the security question. It doesn't have to make sense. It's just a database field you read back to, you know, authenticate yourself and something happens. Thanks, guys. And for our regular listeners, if you enjoy our show, if you can rate and review our podcast on iTunes, we'll send you a deck of our InfoSec cards that's based on the Cards Against Humanity card game. To learn more, please visit veronis.com slash review. And we started off the show talking about fake answers to innocuous questions. What about online fake reviews and companies that crowdsource data for fake rehab centers and then that call center tries to sell that lead to a real treatment facility that has agreed to buy the leads? And it's important to be able to discern real from fake and it's not so easy. Like I think phishing emails have gotten more targeted and it's alarming that these fake companies can even potentially be at the top of a Google search. You have to ask to validate if the business is fake or not. What are your thoughts about new fake world we live in? I think people will do a lot of different things for money. I can imagine you think this is a very victimless crime. You're creating these fake listings. That's what this is, is that there's a particular type of SEO, local SEO optimization that has lots of citations is the term. And these point to, you know, supposedly real locations. And this is not that. So it's um, unscrupulous, bad marketing bit of craziness. And I think it's just, you know, the latest, weirdest iteration of what we've seen for years. Yeah, this kind of reminds me of something I've seen back in the day on forget exactly it might have been yelp or something like that where there's fake restaurants that don't have physical locations but exist solely for the purpose of delivery this is a darker side of that this is you know this is not an actual business or maybe it's it's not exactly who they claim to be and 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 they're trying to deceive you by having fake uh, reviews that lead you to believe that this entity is trustworthy i had never thought of this as a possibility before uh, but it is kind of terrifying um, they, they do mention at the bottom a couple different ways for you to make sure that, that the organizations you're dealing with are reputable or you know even real so you know things like making sure that you're not just following the top search result you get um, doing a little bit of extra digging into things like the company's domain name registration records you know and making sure you're not getting kind of taken if you do take decide to take a phone call from these people. I think we need to all be a little more diligent going forward with the organizations we deal with, especially for something sensitive like rehab facilities where potential for abuse there. Man, this week's uh, articles really bummed me out between uh, <laughs> the giving away personal details and all these fake reviews. It seems like going online anymore is basically an intro course to you know forensic science. If you have to go and validate the domain name and do callbacks, get their information to call them back and validate that the business address is the same as the address on their web page is the same as the address on, you know, their domain registration. It's taxing. And I don't know if there's a good solution to it. Like your grandmother or your cousin or whoever who's not computer savvy is not going to go through all these steps to validate all this information. As Mike said, you know, there are people out there who are unscrupulous who are are out there to make a buck. I don't know if there's a better way to solve this problem aside from everyone just having to be tinfoil hat paranoid about going on the internet. And, you know, we've kind of learned to live in that world, like with fake Amazon reviews, for example. You kind of have to filter out the top and bottom reviews just mentally because you can get the fake ones and then you know you get the people who just want to complain about something that has nothing to do with whatever it is so the truth usually lies somewhere in the middle so i guess i don't know maybe an easier way to look at this is look at multiple reviews online it's hard i guess for a small business to start up if they only have google reviews and you become automatically suspect but if you look at something 
hey, do they have a Facebook page with reviews? Do they have Google reviews? Do they have reviews on some other websites that you know or trust and just not rely on one source of information? Uh, but then again, it's hard. And again, there is money involved in this. And if these people can turn around, you know, get somebody to write the fake reviews for 25 bucks in hopes of selling it for a couple of thousand down the road, they might catch wise to these and start posting in multiple places. So I don't know if that's good advice or bad advice, but it is the world we have now. When something is considered a no-brainer, the speaker assumes that it, something has obvious value when there are many layers to a problem and it impacts how an organization, how they react, whether it's through inaction or a wrong course of action and how to communicate clearly with someone. Like for instance, IAM, they have multi-year engagements and the business side is like, well, why does it require a three-year, five-year engagement when I want to see results now? Isn't the point obvious? I think that's one of the biggest difficulties you have as somebody who is technical in trying to communicate the value of a product or a, a new way of thinking to somebody who's non-technical in a way that actually motivates them. IT guys, when you say no-brainer, it's a matter of who is it a no-brainer to and who else in the conversation needs the context that certain people may have or certain people may lack. What's obvious to IT may not be obvious to somebody who's, you know, the one who actually cuts the check and the one who actually makes the, the big decisions as to whether or not they're going to invest in a technology or a process or a method. And I think that's the, the big gap that we have is that people whose, whose mindset and their training is all about making sure the business itself does well doesn't know how important IAM is or how important it is to you know, handle things from a insider threat perspective or what real-time alerting would do for you or what a DLP solution would do for you without some significant communication to that effect. And that's something that I, you know, I struggle with myself. Speaking their language effectively, making sure that you can communicate in a way that, that they get the message, they understand why it's important for the business as opposed to something that appeals just to IT. From my perspective, the, the concept of the no-brainer is something that I have to make a conscious effort to deal with in my own life. And if we have any, you know, maybe the sales reps, uh, if they listen to this podcast, are probably like this Killian guy. Because I spend so much time in a certain role and world dealing with certain questions. So things are just so obvious to me because I live there. But I have to kind of put myself in other people's shoes when I, when I deal with either internal folks or customers and things like that. And the key is, and I think maybe this is where things get lost, is to ask good questions. And it sounds kind of silly and it sounds kind of salesy, um, but that's not the point. You know, I tend, when somebody asks me for something, I tend to ask some questions. Hey, give me a little detail. Who are you working with? Can you tell me just a little bit of the story? What are they trying to do as you understand it? Because that helps me answer their question better. So if I know what their concerns are, it's not just, hey, give me this thing. And sometimes the answer is, you know, I'm just going to give them whatever it is specifically they ask for because that might be the right answer. But I think between IT and the business, you have to ask those good questions. Hey, not why do you need this, but what are you trying to accomplish? What's the end goal? What's the next step here? What's the vision and where do you see it going? Again, we all have our own vision and they might have something very specific in their mind, but we all see things slightly differently. So to get that conversation going is the most important portion of it. And I think the article also kind of said that there's a little bit of being salesy between the IT people and the business people. Sometimes you get people that have skills in both realms that are able to understand the business perspective and understand some of the technical perspective, but we all specialize in our skills. We're security people. We're not the same as storage people. We're not the same as network people or business people. So to understand their point of view becomes important. And in certain aspects, you know, the security guys have certain knowledge that the business people might not think about, about doing something securely versus uh, quickly or efficiently or to meet the innovation goal that they want. So to ask those good questions, you know, where do you see this going? It becomes fundamental in terms of getting everybody where they need to be in the right way. So sales lesson over. I was just going to mention a very specific thing. Like I think it's sometimes hard to just say like, oh, you need 
need to talk to them more in their language. Something business people in general really key in on is what is happening outside the company in a way a lot of times IT doesn't. And this happens all the time. You see, oh, there's some other company. Maybe it's not even a direct competitor, but it's just some big company. And they have some IT problem that resulted in a data breach or the loss of service or something. That's a great time to forward that on and say like, hey, this is the type of thing we're thinking about. This is what the one system that was approved in the last six months and we've been working as a project to put in would prevent. And that's a way of making it a lot more real. Even with the implied notion of like, oh, they screwed up so bad it was in the Wall Street Journal. They screwed up so bad that you know, it's all over the place. And we don't want that to happen to us. And here's what we're doing to prevent it, just to make it a lot more concrete. And since we've been talking about brains, one day <laughs> we're going to have AI technology that will have the capacity to create original work. And one of our podcast's favorite attorney, Tiffany Lee, she wrote an article about whether or not AI technology will be able to copyright their work and have legal protection. And she sort of compared that to a monkey who recently took a selfie using a photographer's camera and that that case might be able to set a precedent for feature cases. And we just learned this week that the monkey lost the selfie copyright case. And I just want to hear your thoughts about how this all unfolded and whether or um, not you think AI technology deserve uh, legal protection or not. The monkey was represented in large part by PETA, the uh, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, which is actually located like their headquarters are very close to my house. They're a big fixture in the area. They're in kind of a tough spot where they take on these cases to sort of, in a way, like hack the media to get a lot of attention. And that's really what this was about. So I don't know if it was a great case to decide the future of AIs or something that you just get a lot of publicity out of. What struck me about this and about the AI in general is that I feel like this is a huge domain of sci-fi writing uh, up until present. If you think about even things like Ghost in the Shell, uh, to be super nerdy, not the movie, the, the original ones in some of the books. But they deal a large part about that, about what it means to be human and things like that. And it's interesting, conceptually at least, if the system gets to the point of complexity, you you know, where it's indistinguishable from a person or if it becomes cognizant of its own existence, you know, at what point do we convey that legal status to it? And that's something that we'll have to figure out eventually. In the, the monkey case, I, I think it's kind of frivolous and silly. Um, and I think, as Mike said, this seems like a publicity stunt. You know, monkeys are, are pretty smart and tricky, but I don't know if most people or I don't know, maybe I'm going to anger some animal rights activists, but they're equivalent to people. The case sounds dubious, but I think we have more interesting ethical questions about AI at some point. The, the AI angle on this one, I, I kind of had to think about it from the perspective of at what point does it stop being a program and start being a being? Because I would say that if somebody wrote a program and the program made art, then the person who made the program is the owner of the art, I would assume. Now, you have to kind of define what where does it become its own being and at what point does it stop being simply a piece of code? And I'm not sure I'm qualified to answer that question, but I think it's a good thought experiment. I think it's interesting to think about it from that perspective of, you know, when have we made something that is its own, has its own cognizance, has its own realization that it's a, a being that exists. What about things that we see now a lot in like mobile games, like procedurally generated games where the system will randomly create the levels for you based on whatever, you know, and assign characters and things like that. Would you consider that an act of creation or is that simply still executing a program? I would call that still a program because you're, you're you're putting together what is seemingly random, but isn't truly, there's an, there's an algorithm behind how this is being done. There's, you know, X number of different variables that are being played with and 
you get a different value for each one of those each time and that's how you build a level from my understanding at least so that's still code written by a person that has an outcome it's not a being it doesn't have emotion or feeling it's simply a set of instructions at that point now again that's, that's the the hard part is where do you define that line where does it stop being that and right so I don't how think, many I don't variables think it, do you have to have thing, for it yeah. to become I don't know. You know at what point do we not understand it anymore and then does that become sentient I have sort of an orthogonal thing to this which is that we already have AIs that we assign copyright to and they're called corporations and that's already out there I think from a technical standpoint and where this is sort of rubber meets the road the procedure generated things, to my knowledge, work exactly as you guys described, which is that it's really parameterization. You put out these parameters and within certain things it generates. But there are now with the neural networks and some of that training where there's a lot of situations we're getting into where we don't understand quite how the model was built that uh, we don't understand quite how the program is actually keying off of X versus Y within this this whole space. It's just doing something and it understands it in a way that's very different than what we have. So should we invite Arnold Schwarzenegger to come tell us when a machine becomes more human? We can ask Rob Zombie. He has that song, More Human Than Human. It's true. He, it's his, his PhD in, uh, in robotics that uh, informed that, that song. Hey, Mike, do we have a tool of the week? Yes. It's uh, called Algo, and it's not actually about an algorithm. It's something that lets you set up your own VPN on a VPS. And that was some very similar sounding acronyms, but your own virtual private network server on a virtual private server. And so you can go to a web host like... DigitalOcean or Vulture or AWS and provision your own system. And then with this, really, it's a series of very well done uh, scripts to do deployment. We'll deploy your own private VPN server that's only accessed by you. So unlike a general VPN service where your traffic is mixed in with everyone else, this is strictly for your own use. And it's more private and more performant and really interesting for all that and very easy to set up than trying to do it from scratch. So that's Algo. Thanks to Mike Buckby, Chris Kaiser, Killian Engler, and all our listeners for joining us today. Also, please let us know what you think about our podcast by going to iTunes to rate and review our show because my performance review is counting on it. Thanks <laughs> and enjoy the beautiful spring season. Bye. Bye. Take care, everyone. Thanks, guys. Bye. Support for the Inside Out Security Show and the following message come from Veronis. A Veronis data risk assessment doesn't take long. A 90-minute software install lets you map access to your directory services, classify files to discover what's sensitive, and start monitoring and analyzing user behavior. If you want to turn on the lights, Veronis can help. Visit info.veronis.com forward slash podcast and get a free data risk assessment.